Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 34, 2 Samuel chapter 22. Well, as we continue in this well-known song of thanksgiving of 2 Samuel chapter 22, I'm going to start by reminding you that this same song appears in Psalms as number 18. Now, we're still not going to finish chapter 22 today, so rich and deep are its lessons for us. Now, this song is David's soaring in majestic offer of gratitude to the Lord for all the goodness that David has been shown. The divine inspiration presented in this psalm is especially obvious when he talks about future kings and the future kingdoms. But there are other elements of this work that reminds us that David was all too human. And so we're going to find this anointed king of Israel at times presenting a, an inflated view of himself that conflicts with what we've already read and what we've learned about it. Now some of what we'll read is generalities. Some is actually harking back to specific, of, uh, specific events. So this is a complex poem that offers prayer and praise, wisdom and prophecy. Now, trying to discover which is which isn't always easy, but it's certainly doable. So let's get started. Now, we ended with verse 13 last time, and the stanza of the poem that began at verse 8 describes an event whereby the Lord God decided to act in a violent way against those who were His anointed king's enemies. It is self-evident that this is describing something that did not happen in David's day. For we never hear of it. We, we don't read of it. We don't read of such a cosmic display of divine wrath in order to deliver David from some enemy. But especially in verses 10 through 12, when we peel away the veil of the English language and peer into the original Hebrew, we see what must be a future event to David's era. But when might that be? And I'm not going to review the details of last week's discussion on the subject. However, the connected use of the words sukkah and maim, booths and water, gives us a large hint that this event occurs on the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, whose main features are booths, sukkah, and the water libation ceremony that asks God for rain, Mayim. Thus my conclusion was that what we have here is a prophetic vision of the end times when God pours out His wrath on the earth during the time of the coming, the return of Messiah, God's anointed King and mediator between God and man. So with that understanding, let's read a little bit more of 2 Samuel chapter 22. 
We're going to do this in little pieces. So we're just going to read uh, verses 14, 15, and 16. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 360. Adonai thundered from heaven. Ha El Yon sounded his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them. With lightning he routed them. The channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were exposed at Adonai's rebuke. At a blast of breath from his nostrils. Now a thunderstorm is often used as a biblical metaphor for the God of Israel expressing his displeasure with something. And that is what is being imagined here. The ancients had no understanding of the source of thunder. And since it came from the clouds or from above the clouds, it was thought of as coming from the gods. The Hebrews more or less imagined it the same way. Thus, when we read in numerous places in the scriptures that God thunders from the heaven, it is explaining that these intimidating claps of thunder are sure indicators that God is angry and that this anger in heaven is the precursor to his wrath soon being physically poured out on earth, usually on God's enemies at other times upon the unfaithful among God's own people. Thus, thunder was often considered as God's voice. And here in the second half of the couplet that forms verse 14, we see a word or a title for God that bears a moment of explanation. Now, usually translated into English as most high, a better translation would be the most high. See, the Hebrew is ha elyon. Ha is Hebrew for the. Elyon is Hebrew for most high. But most high is not actually literal. Okay? Rather, it's a dynamic translation that struggles to get a meaning across that can be, compre- that, that can be comprehended okay, by non-Hebrews and non-Hebrew speakers and the modern world in general. A bit more literal might be the highest L. You know, I've been quite repetitious and insistent for many years throughout our studies of the Torah and the Old Testament that it's critical to understand the mindset of the people of that particular biblical era and therefore what they mentally pictured as they wrote these words that we all hold so dear. And by no means was it yet fully ingrained in the Israelites that there was but one God in all existence and that this one God was sovereign over all people, nations, and elements of nature. What they more or less accepted as of David's day was that Israel had only one God. And his name was Yehovah. They also accepted that other nations had other gods. Matter of fact, more gods than Israel had. 
and the names and works of these gods and goddesses was quite well known to the Israelites since they lived in Canaan, a place where many, if not most, of the land's original residents still remained. And they still practiced their ancient Babylon mystery religions. El was the standard Middle Eastern name for the chief god that sat at the top of each separate nation's particular pantheon of gods. Every Middle Eastern culture recognized an El, even if they imagined him slightly differently from culture to culture. So David's mental picture and the meaning that people of David's era ascribed to the term ha el is of Yehovah being first Israel's El, Israel's highest chief God, especially so since Israel had only one God. And also that Yehovah was El over all the other Els of the other cultures. Sort of the chairman of the board of the Els. So Ha El Yon was essentially a uniquely Hebrew concept of there being one God who is higher and more powerful than all other gods that exist, including all the other Els that exist. So we must not think that David or any others in his day had this neat, clean concept of monotheism as modern Judeo-Christianity holds. We know that there is but one God in the entire universe and beyond. And that any thought of another God whatsoever or in any capacity is but wicked human fantasy. David seems to have held that Yehovah was the best and the highest of all gods. Perfect. Without peer but that indeed there were other gods. And these other gods were in no way fanciful thoughts of men. We're going to see David's successor, Solomon, acknowledge this in a very tangible and visible way as he allows his many wives and concubines to erect idols, asherah, and altars to scores of other gods right alongside Jehovah's holiest places. Well, verse 15 continues the thunderstorm motif as lightning bolts are imagined as God's arrows being shot from heaven. Now, the meaning is that Jehovah sent his blows earthward like arrows raining down upon David's enemies. And I said at the outset of today's lesson that some of these actions are general in nature, while some are meant to be taken as more specific. This one about lightning is a generality. But in verse 16, we have an obvious reference to the parting of the Red Sea. When the waters piled up into liquid walls, as, as the Hebrews fleeing from Pharaoh marched across the now exposed sea bottom. Now recall that in Exodus we are also told that a wind blew across the, the muddy seabed and dried it to make it easier and quicker for Israel to escape over it. 
Thus we have David remember this event by using the imagery of the channels of the sea appearing, the uneven floor of the sea, the foundations of the world being exposed, what what lay below that mysterious and deadly ocean. And then that's followed with a blast of breath from the Lord's fiery nostrils. And, And such a recollection of the parting of the Red Sea from Moses is most appropriate as the theme of this whole song is gratitude to God for divine deliverance from certain death and destruction, the hand of an enemy. So here we have in this song an example of a specific now as opposed to a general action of God as he saves his people from calamity. But I see something else too. Immediately preceding this section of verses 14 to 16 was this prophetic vision that that concerned God's king and mediator, the Messiah, in the end times. We talked about it just a minute ago. And this was as God pours out His wrath on the occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Sukkot timing being my opinion based on elements of this and other passages. Thus verses 8 through 13 deal with God's second mediator, Yeshua, who's future to David, while verses 14 through 16 deal with God's first mediator, Moses, who is past to David. Let's read a little bit more. Let's read verses 17 through 19. Follow along. He sent from on high. He took me and pulled me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from those who hated me, for they were stronger than I. They came against me on my day of calamity, but Adonai was my support. In verse 17, David continues to recognize that it is God alone who saves and who can save under any circumstance boy what a comfort but if we look closer we see that again a specific event or specific circumstance is probably what David has in mind here notice in verse 18 that David says he was saved from his powerful enemy and that the word enemy oyeb is singular The rabbis take note of this. And they say correctly, I think, that David has in mind such times as when he faced a single adversary, like against Goliath. But then the next part of the verse adds that God also rescued him from those who hate me and they who are stronger than I. These, those and they, are armies. These are groups of adversaries acting collectively against David. So when the, whether the danger comes from a single source or a whole assembly, God saves. Let's read a little bit more. Verses 20 through 28. (laughs) 
He brought me out into an open place. He rescued me because He took pleasure in me. Adonai rewarded me for my uprightness. He repaid me because my hands were clean. For I have kept the ways of Adonai, have not done evil by leaving my God. For all His rulings were before me. I did not depart from His regulations. I was pure-hearted towards Him. And I kept myself from sin. Hence, Adonai repaid me for my uprightness according to my purity in His view. With the merciful, you are merciful. With the champion of purity, you are pure. With the honest, you are honest. But with the crooked, you are cunning. People afflicted, you save. But when your eyes are on the haughty, you humble them. When we enter this section of this psalm, some real difficulties arise. Because frankly, some of it challenges credibility. David says that God brought him out into an open place, and this is referring to times when he was trapped but still escaped. And David is thinking militarily. Like when Saul was chasing him, and David became caught in a pincer's movement by Saul and his soldiers. But somehow, David miraculously wiggled out of trouble. So the thought is of him being hemmed into a tight spot with little room for movement, but then being rescued and placed into a wide open space where David could maneuver either to flee or to regroup and take advantage of the terrain. That's all rather straightforward. But the trouble for us begins when David goes on to explain why it is that God did this for him. He says it is that Adonai rewarded me for my uprightness. He repaid me because my hands were clean. Then in the next couple of verses, King David goes on to explain that he's kept all the ways of Jehovah. He's not done evil. He abides by all of God's rulings. He hasn't departed from God's regulations. Further, that David was pure-hearted and he had kept himself from sin. Hmm. Verse 25 sums this up by the psalmist, who was David, explaining that God repaid him with great deliverances for his uprightness. And this in accordance to David's purity before God. Wow, where do we start? I can tell you that as I pursued a way to explain David's thought process in a manner that was, well, considerably less negative than what seemed evident to me, I examined quite a number of reliable and venerated Jewish and Christian scholars' viewpoints on this passage. And to my surprise... Christian scholars tended to just merely skip over and ignore these statements. 
apparently taking them at face value without any comment or serious examination. And not at all surprisingly, the Jewish scholars completely agree with David that he was indeed without fault or sin of any kind. And thus, Jehovah responded to David accordingly. Somehow, the damning passage that emanates from the prophet Nathan's mouth that occurs earlier in 2 Samuel and obviously refutes David's words of chapter 22 is set on the shelf and ignored. Let's go back and reread a portion of 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read the first 14 verses of it. Page 345 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Adonai sent Nathan, Nathan, to David. And he came and said to him, In a certain city there were two men, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had vast flocks, herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb which he had brought, bought and reared. It had grown up with him and his children. It ate from his plate, drank from his cup, it lay on his chest. It was like a daughter to him. And one day a traveler visited the rich man. And instead of picking an animal from his own flock or herd to cook for his visitor, he took this poor man's lamb and cooked it for the man who had come to him. David exploded with anger against this man and said to Natan, As Adonai lives, the man who did this deserves to die. For doing such a thing, he has to pay back four times the value of the lamb. And also because he had no pity, Natan said to David, You are that man. Here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives to embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you a lot more. So why have you shown such contempt for the word of Adonai and done what I see as evil? You murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife as your own wife. You put him to death with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you've shown contempt for me. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own wife. Here's what Adonai says. I will generate evil against you out of your own household. I will take your wives before your very eyes and give them to your neighbor. He will go to bed with your wives. Everyone will know about it. For you did it secretly. I'll do this before all Israel in broad daylight. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Adonai. I'm not sure how to reconcile this passage with what we just read in chapter 22. How can David speak of his own faithfulness to God's laws, how he has kept himself from sin, and yet by his own mouth admitted 
all of his fault in chapter 12, verse 13. I have sinned against Adonai. How can we have witnessed David's unconscionable behavior with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband Uriah, and then read of God's curses upon David and seriously accept David's claim in chapter 22. He's totally upright and innocent. Like so much of what we've seen from David, there seems to be present here a mixture of truth and deception, reserve and exaggeration, humility and braggadocio. One of the most difficult things, I think, for God's worshipers who undertake our duty and obligation to study God's word diligently in order to ascertain His will and and His character is to discern when some of the Bible's greatest heroes are doing right versus doing wrong. The issue is whether the viewpoints and claims they are making in their recorded conversations are proper representations of God's ways or whether they have got it wrong and they are merely behaving according to ancient custom or they're reacting to their own evil inclinations. I am not speaking of biblical error or situations whereby we have to decide over which of the stated attributes of God or which of His laws are true and pure and others aren't. I am also not speaking of perhaps a biblical character's words or actions being falsely reported in the Bible. Rather it is that we are often put into a position of having to take all that we've learned by studying God's word from the beginning and building upon his laws and principles step by step so that we're equipped to detect when a biblical character is making a right or a wrong decision, taking a good or an evil action. Because so very often, these characters' words or actions receive no negative or positive reinforcement or affirmation in the Bible. They are not commented upon. Rather, they're merely left to stand as reported, as accurate historical fact. So by all that seems possible, without doing some pretty major gymnastics, doctrinal gymnastics, I can only conclude that most of David's statements in verses 20-25 to 25 amount to his boasting. Perhaps they're David making some broad assumptions, speculating on why it could only be that the Lord would do such marvelous things on David's behalf. And then the reason in his mind is his pure and upright behavior in nature. We must remember, David is a king. He has sufficiently demonstrated to us that he enjoys the privileges of royalty. He often sees himself as special above it all. And this is partly to do with cultural norms and the common thinking of the times. He sees himself as the anointed of God, which is certainly true. 
But being a flawed man, he also assumes that this means that the standards that he insists upon for his citizenry don't necessarily apply to him. That's not particularly unique, is it? (laughs) I can see little other way for David to seriously claim such perfect purity and innocence than to take him at his word as clearly stated in this passage that essentially what God has done for him in defeating David's enemies is a like-for-like repayment of David's faithful works towards God and towards God's laws and regulations. And I think that that theory is proven when we look at verses 26, 27, and 28. See, these verses are precisely the Torah principle of what most Christians call an eye for an eye. Scholars call it lex talionis. Thus David says that with those who behave correctly according to God's standards, God shows favor in return. To those who are merciful, God will show mercy. With those who love purity, God is pure. With those who are honest, God displays honesty. But with those who trespass against God's laws, God deals harshly in like kind with them. With the crooked, says God is cunning. He's not forthright. People who are haughty, God humbles. People who are afflicted, God saves. Let's talk about that one for a moment. In Hebrew, the afflicted people are called the afflicted Am. And remember, for some time now in the Bible, actually since shortly after Abraham, the term Am is referring to God's chosen people. Generally, it's referring to Israel. But in a broader scope, it's also referring to all who worship the God of Israel. So the meaning of verse 28 is a pretty sobering one. God saves His afflicted worshipers. However, to those of His worshipers whose eyes become haughty, it says, those who see themselves as great above the others, presumably due to their own merit, then to those people who have such a wrong attitude, God's going to humble them. Let that sink in for a minute. So far we've seen that God utterly destroys His enemies without hope and without mercy. But for those whom He sees as His people, He will save them. Yet even among the saved are those who become arrogant. Those who see themselves as holier than thou. Those who believe themselves to stand above the rules, God's rules. And so live their lives in that way. And to those, God will humble. He will bring low, 
Sounds like a pretty good description of David to me. But God does not abandon them. See, here is a principle that itself has been abandoned in too many of our modern churches. The principle is that God will punish them, those who, whom He saved for doing what is wrong. He won't leave them for wrong behavior, but He will cause them great harm on this earth as a consequence for wrong behavior. On the other hand, God will abandon those who claim to be His, and we're not going to debate whether they actually at one time were His or really only pretenders, but whose behavior is an outward reflection of who and what it is that they identify with. See, David and Saul are excellent examples of this principle. Saul and David each committed the most horrible, ungodly behaviors. And they did so over an extended period of time and a number of settings and circumstances. So the bad behaviors certainly weren't flukes or exceptions to the rule. Yet Saul was permanently expelled from God's presence and from God's kingdom while David was chastised, severely punished, but allowed to remain within God's presence and within God's kingdom. Saul was vomited out of God's mouth for his wrong behavior. David was harshly disciplined, but he remained loved by God. Why the different treatment? In a nutshell, it came down to two factors. Identification and zeal. Identification and zeal. See, Saul quit identifying with God. He also lost any zeal for God. And instead, he kept trying to find ways around God. Saul eventually saw God as an adversary. So he tried to defeat God's will at every turn. Especially when he was directly told by Samuel that David was God's new anointed king. So Saul tried to kill David to stop that from happening. David never quit identifying himself with God. He didn't lose his zeal for God. He didn't lose his love and respect for God. And he never tried to usurp God's sovereignty. However, David did run very hot. Meaning he determined to act in the most pious, faithful manner possible. Like when he refused to kill Saul even though Saul was often in his clutches. He also ran very cold, meaning that he didn't renounce God's laws. Matter of fact, he fully expected others to obey them. But he allowed his own evil inclinations to rule his life. He saw himself as above it all, and thus he greatly sinned at times. Now I want to quote a passage 
for you from Revelation, do this again, in which this principle is forcefully stated by the end times Messiah. Don't turn there, just listen. Revelation 3, 14 through 16. To the angel of the Messianic community in Laodicea, write, Here is the message from the Amen, from the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know what you are doing. You're neither hot nor cold. Oh, how I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot, neither cold, I vomit you out of my mouth. Then a few verses down, verse 19. As for me, I rebuke and discipline everyone I love. So exert yourselves and turn from your sins. See, I cringe every time I hear a well-meaning pastor tell his congregation that A, sinning has nothing to do with obedience to any written biblical regulation of God, and B, no amount of behavioral sins will bring the believer any punishment from God. And although they don't state it, the reason for this doctrine is the incorrect belief that divine punishment equates to divine abandonment. Folks, Christ couldn't be clearer that He rebukes and disciplines everyone that He loves but who commit wrong behavior, sin. So as it applies to Christ's followers... To avoid a rebuke and discipline that he'd rather not have to do, what does he say to do? Exert yourself. Turn from your sins. Turn from your disobedience to God's laws and commandments. Which, by the way, is the only biblical definition of sin that exists. Then who is it that God does abandon? Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We are going to read from 17 through 28. Romans chapter 1, page 1402 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. For in it is revealed how God makes people righteous in His sight, and from beginning to end, it is through trust. As the Tanakh puts it, but the person who is righteous will live his life by trust. What is revealed is God's anger from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness and people who in their wickedness keep suppressing the truth. Because what is known about God is plain to them, since God has made it plain to them. For ever since the creation of the universe, His invisible qualities, both His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen 
because they can be understood from what He has made. Therefore, they have no excuse. Because although they know who God is, they do not glorify Him as God or thank Him. On the contrary, they have become futile in their thinking and their undiscerning hearts have become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they've become fools. In fact, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images like a mortal human being or like birds, animals, reptiles. This is why God has given them up to the vileness of their hearts, to the shameful misuse of each other's bodies. They've exchanged the truth of God for falsehood by worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. Praised be He forever. Amen. This is why God has given them up to degrading passions so that their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural and likewise the men. Giving up natural relations with the opposite sex, they burn in passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with other men, receiving in their own persons the penalty appropriate to their perversion. In other words, since they have not considered God worth knowing, God's given them up to worthless ways of thinking so that they do improper things. And Paul puts those who are abandoned by God into yet another context. Identification as evidenced by a firm and unrelenting grip on a wrong and ungodly lifestyle. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't turn there, just listen. Don't you know that unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't delude yourselves. People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal, who are greedy, who get drunk, who assail people with contemptuous language, who rob, none of them will share in the kingdom of God. Some of you used to do these things, but you've cleansed yourselves. You have been set apart for God. You have come to be counted righteous through the power of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and the Spirit of our God. Now let me tell you something. Verse 11 is not well translated by our complete Jewish Bible. Let me give you a better one that makes an important distinction. And this is from good old reliable. The King James Version. Corinthians 6, 11. 1 Corinthians. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, the complete Jewish Bible says you used to do these things. The King James Version, and frankly almost all other translations, say you were these things. Such were you. And that's the point. Identification. What you do is your behavior. 
What you are is your identity. As a good friend once said to me, going to church no more makes you a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. (laughs) Those who are what they do versus those who are Christ's but do some of these wrong things, that's the crux of the matter. Those who identify with greed, drunkenness, homosexuality, idolatry, versus those who identify with Christ, but in their weakness have committed drunkenness, greed, idolatry, a homosexual act. I watched a portion of the TV series a few nights ago. I wish I would have recorded it, saved it, to show you. Because it demonstrates this point so well. The pertinent part was when a man who had a good woman, a decent home, a steady job, he worked with some other men to plan and commit a strong-armed robbery. And after the robbery, when he arrived home to face his wife... She was just flabbergasted that he did this terrible thing and that he was so calm and cool and forthcoming about it all. Not to mention that although he had been to prison in the past for doing such things, that years had gone by and he seemed to have turned over a new leaf. His response to her was, he had no choice. He is a thief by nature. And so he was just doing what was natural for him. His whole being is wrapped up in thievery. So the years that went by when he committed no crime were actually out of character for him. The Scriptures tell us that such a man who identifies with his sinful behavior in so strong a manner is that behavior. And thus, he cannot also identify with God. The two are mutually exclusive. Fellow believers, our daily behavior neither gets us into nor gets us ejected from heaven. But our daily behavior as believers will merit us either God's mercy and blessings or God's severe discipline. Christ's death on the cross saved us from the curse of eternal death for our sinful behavior and our sinful nature. But it did not save us from God's curse of punishments and calamities on this earth during our physical lifespan in a response to our bad behavior, our sins. Equally so, even theoretically perfect behavior, but without identifying with Christ, may well bring, uh, bring us a, a, a well-merited life full of earthly blessings with loving adoration from our friends and our family, 
but at our passing from this life. Only the absolute certainty of a curse of eternal death awaits us. King David is held up by Judaism as the example of messianic perfection. However, what he really is is a perfect example of the life and journey, the highs and the lows, the successes and the failures of a believer. It is an example that demonstrates that our trust and zeal in the Lord God is God's only measure for our eternal salvation. Our daily behavior, our daily obedience to His commandments and principles, this is what will merit us His earthly blessings or His earthly punishments. We'll continue chapter 22 next week.